For our next Billion Dollar B2B podcast, I'm excited to share a recent conversation I had with Confluent co-founder and CEO Jake Reps at Battery's Open Cloud Summit, our annual cloud technology event. Prior to founding Confluent, Jay was the lead architect for data and infrastructure at LinkedIn and the initial developer of several open source projects, including Apache Kafka, which underpinned Confluent's initial products. Have a listen. Good morning, everybody. We are honored to be here today with Jay Krebs, founder CEO of Confluent, from an open source project at LinkedIn to a $20 billion public company. What an incredible run. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Well, Jay, I know you started your journey with you know, Jun Rao and Neha back at LinkedIn in 2008, and then leading up to the founding of Confluent in 2014. Tell us more, what was Apache Kafka, which is the project you started at LinkedIn, one of many, what was that intended to do at LinkedIn? And when did you decide it was time to take it as an independent venture? Yeah, so the, the technology came around in an interesting way. So I was, I was part of the team at LinkedIn and LinkedIn was really kind of going through you know, its journey and just trying to scale to be a social network that had people all over the world and could provide the set of services. And so we had you know, ended up putting a lot of work into the infrastructure of the company. And there wasn't a lot of stuff that was available off the shelf. So you can go buy products that would operate at large scale geographically distributed around the world. And so we, you know, we were building a lot of these systems to work with data at scale. Um, and one of the things I realized was, you know, all the systems we had were about storage. They were about, you know, taking a pile of data and keeping it safe and looking up little bits of it when you needed it. Um, yeah, and that was really kind of the framing of the whole problem around data, but where we were spending a lot of time was how does data get between stuff and how do we react to what's happening as it occurs? And there was a lot of custom code getting built that would solve you know, bits of that problem. But it seemed like that, you know, that ought to be the domain of infrastructure to have some kind of platform that makes that much easier to tap into what's there. And so you know, the idea behind Kafka at LinkedIn was really connect all this stuff together. So the idea was it could be you know, kind of like the central nervous system more than the, the memory banks, right? You know, that you would kind of have those real-time impulses of what's happening and application software could react to that. It could, you know, go and be stored in different storage layers and really kind of connect it all up. And so, so that was the goal internally. We, we built it um, with the intention of making it an open source project and we thought it could be successful. We thought this is a big area. Um, we rolled it out internally and released it as open source, really initially to you know resounding silence. I would say not nobody really had much idea what we were trying to do. It wasn't it wasn't an established category, so it was a little harder to get people to understand what it was for. But over time, that started to build, and a whole set of tech companies started to adopt it, which you know eventually led to the the founding of the company, um, Confluent, really a ton of growth uh, into the larger space around real time data, data in motion. Got it. And I know you started the project back in 2008 or nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and that's right. The early kind of was around that. Yeah. And it took another five or six years for the, the open source community to grow and grow mainstream before you started Confluent, right? What were some of the triggers? Were you getting feedback from the community saying, hey, we need you to support non-LinkedIn specific features? Or were there other signals in the community that led you to believe there should be an independent venture? It's interesting. People often say, well, you probably had no idea this could be a big thing. You know, we actually thought it could be a big thing. We were like, hey, data in motion, this is like half the problem. All the infrastructures for data at rest, but could be and will be are pretty far apart. 
<laughs> and so, you know, we, we didn't really have a great understanding of how companies in the larger economy worked, what their needs really were. We kind of understood the Silicon Valley crew, but, but maybe not that larger world. As we started to get a little bit more of a feel for that as the open source adoption group, we kind of realized, hey, this, this technology is actually not just important in these tech companies. Um, you know, it's very important there, but it could actually be applicable everywhere. But to, to make that happen is gonna require a company that really drives it. You know, if we do that, that's gonna be a really big deal. And it, it doesn't make sense to, you know, just try and pursue that, you know, kind of working in the basement of this social network and posting code up on GitHub. Like we need a proper product and service and way of taking this out to all the companies in the world. And so, you know, at that point, then we were like, okay, we should do this. And the question is just how to go about it. You know, what's the business model? What would the product look like? Who would early customers be? You know, there's a million decisions you have to make. So we spent some time thinking about that before we jumped into it. But that was, you know, that was a little bit about how it came about. That's great. No, that, that leads me to my next question. You know, often open source projects were, you know, initially almost considered as like nonprofit ventures, like, hey, let's give the software back. And I recall back in 2015 or 16, I'd written a blog about Cloudera versus Hortonworks. And I got a lot of nasty grams from, you know, open source zealots who are like, hey, how could you ever think about making money from open source? And clearly some of the most successful ventures in the last few years have thought about commercializing the product while growing the community, they don't have to come at odds with each other, right? So maybe walk us through your journey. What were some of the building blocks you put in place as you started Confluent? What did you decide should go in the community and grow the community versus you know, what should go in the commercial product and give you the opportunity to, to monetize? Maybe some of the early open source projects were probably a little bit more almost religious in spirit about open source. You know, I think that was probably because there was no open source software. So it was almost a kind of like heresy to be working on something in that way. You know, now it's just very ubiquitous. So I think it's just become a much more pragmatic thing for companies of all kinds. And so some of that kind of religious zeal is less. I think people are just more practical. Uh, for us, uh, we felt it was really important if you want to get a new idea and kind of new way of thinking about data and new technology out there and really get people to do something different. Then the question is, you know, where, how can you get that out in the world? And a, a world in which we started with a purely proprietary product and we're kind of, you know, going door to door saying, hey, do you want to, you know, re-architect all your stuff around a new central nervous system with the new paradigm for data? I think we would have been, you know, immensely unsuccessful, right? It would be an uphill battle to find anybody who wants to try some untested technology in that role. Whereas, um, you know, something that can uh, allow much more organic adoption can find its place uh, in a million different ways. It kind of seeps through the cracks, as it were. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was a huge asset. Um, as we were thinking about building the company, we realized, like, look, um, you know, in many ways, Kafka is kind of the foundation of this. Like, it's really that interchange for real-time data. But there's a whole problem around how you connect into all the different systems and the real-time processing and the governance of that data, how you secure it. And then, you know, especially, and, and we were late enough in the cycle that we knew this would be kind of part of the company from early on, especially how you can get like a, a real managed service that just does this for you, um, takes away a lot of the operational problems of big distributed systems. So we knew there was like a lot there. Um, and we didn't feel like, oh, there's, you know, there's not, there's not going to be anything that we can bring to the table as a product. And then philosophically, you know, I do think that, um, you know, if you want to build a healthy business that, um, you know, has the ability to continue to invest in innovation and grow, 
Um, you, you do need to have something that's differentiated. You have to have a product which is unique to you. You have to have a way of you know, really investing in R&D and making that something that helps you in competition with competitors. And so, you know, I, I think the kind of purely open source model where there's, there's really nothing differentiated, I don't think it works that well. Um, you, there's, there's counterexamples uh, of companies that have, you know, made that more successful, but I would say on average, it's a harder path because, you know, if the company does come under competition and usually most ideas, if they're good, will eventually get some competitors. The challenge is, you know, you have to maintain differentiation entirely with um, branding, you know, whatever else, go to market scale, whatever it is, but non, you know, no product differentiation, which is, which I, I think is hard to do. And so I think, you know, the, the model that, um, you know, most of the companies have landed on is something where, you know, you try and build a really successful and thriving open source uh, um, product that can help get out in the world and then, you know, build, um, you know, something that, that is unique to the company that, uh, takes that and offers it as a service or completes the picture and ecosystem that customers need, but really does something, you know, more and better. And it, it's hard to get both of those right. You know, that, that's definitely one of the challenges in this area, you know, but is, but is actually really critical to building a, a business that can thrive. Yeah, no, clearly you guys are building an incredible 300 million plus business. It sounds like in a very short period of time. So clearly you guys thought about all of those things early in the journey. Jay, if I, if I double click on that some more, you know, I've seen companies over, you know, over the last 10, 20 years take different approaches to monetization. There's folks who provide support and services, mostly on-premises. Others who take an open core approach saying, hey, there are some features that are in the, in the paid product. And others even like Databricks that have taken more a managed services approach to giving you all the complexity, giving you all the functionality, but managing it for you. Did you guys have religion over like one of those approaches and how has that evolved over time? Yeah, yeah, it, it really, um, it has evolved, right? So the early companies were kind of either providing support or providing support plus some kind of open core product. Um, in some cases, the product was kind of de minimis. I would say there, there just isn't that much there that people were buying. That was kind of the early model as we were getting started. Um, you know, I think we were lucky to be like late enough in the cycle that we could look at what had happened with some of those companies, like how had it played out, what was good, what was bad. And we also knew uh, enough about that, the cloud adoption and what was going to be possible in that environment that we felt comfortable that that was going to be something we were going to need to do. So as we were coming into it, we kind of knew we were going to build you know, a product that was differentiated and unique to us. And then because of the space we were in, we knew we were going to end up with both. And I, I don't think that's actually the right answer for most companies, uh, but each product is a little different. There are some products where you don't really care where it is. So... You know, maybe you had uh, Atlassian back in the day, you know, it was running on your servers in your data center. You moved to, you know, a cloud version uh, of an Atlassian product. You know, it's just a swap. You don't really care where it is. But for this kind of low latency data technology, it has to be where your applications are. And because it's about connecting stuff up and communicating between environments, it actually ends up having to be everywhere your applications are. And so we can't be picky and be like, hey, it would be more convenient for us to just build it in one cloud um, and offer our service there in one region. That actually doesn't work. It has to be in all the clouds and all the regions. It has to work on premise. And that allows companies to kind of have this fabric for you know, data flow that spans all the parts of the company, that, that kind of central nervous system metaphor. Like you can't be the central nervous system if you only work in like the right half of the body, right? So you know, that's, that was, an you know, whether it's a constraint, right, is a hard thing coming into it because we're like, hey, we're going to have to very quickly go 
and get this up and operational in every cloud provider. We're going to have to have a software product that can go work on premise. That's a lot to do all at once. But the, the good news about any of these kind of hard things is then, you know, if you survive it, uh, then it becomes a moat, you know, for other competitors where, you know, without that, competitors can maybe only serve part of the market. You you, talk, you touched upon cloud and competitors kind of in the same line, right? So in many ways, like what it sounds like, because Kafka and Confluent were so mission critical and you had to be close to the data, it was kind of, it was ubiquitous. And so in some sense, it was easier to monetize. On the other hand, there's a lot more competition because when you're running on AWS, Google, Microsoft, and they can provide a good enough service for Apache Kafka, you know, there's more competition. So you know, it's it's kind of a two side two sides of the coin. How did you guys think about you know cooperation with the cloud providers? Because on one hand, you guys are all progressing the cloud agenda ahead at the same time. On the other hand, there may be you know conflicting ways to monetize it. So any any best practices in terms of partnering with them, but still staying ahead from a competitive standpoint? It's an interesting dynamic. The cloud providers are great partners. They're actually our best partners, um, and they all each have between like five and seven. <laughs> products that all compete with each other and compete with us. Right. And so that's that's just the reality. Um, you know, the way that you manage that competition is um, not complicated, actually. You know, any large company, the advantages they're going to have are going to be scale, usually go-to-market bundling. Um, you may be kind of the de facto vendor relationship that, that they may have. The way, um, you know, a newer focused you know, company is going to be successful is like, hey, you know this domain, you should be able to build a much better product by just focusing in that area and really getting it right. Um, you should be able to really kind of take uh, customers on the kind of journey to be successful with the technology better. You know, one of the um, pros and cons of go-to-market bundling, you know, the pro is, hey, you can put a lot of products together and have some Salesforce take it out to market. You know, the con is Salesforce sells 300 products. Like, you know, they don't know that much about the individual products. It's hard for each one to kind of get the attention. So if you have something that's important, you can really, you know, differentiate in how uh, companies succeed with that. That's a huge deal for us for, you know, the technology kind of grows and spreads in the organization, like really getting customers to success is a big part of that and mapping to all the stages and having the right product features at each stage. But I, I think there's a similar journey in a lot of, you know, different spaces. I think Snowflake did an amazing job of, kind of getting the data warehouse adoption journey down and getting customers to success there. And so, yeah, I think for companies that focus and compete effectively, um, you know, it's definitely possible to, to build a very successful business. And then, you know, there is an advantage that comes to us from just accessing the full market, right? So, you know, even today, it's a minority of dollars, um, you know, on software development that are being spent in the cloud. And those are split over three different clouds. And so, you know, if there's a new proprietary system in our space, it's in one of those clouds, they have a fraction of a fraction of the market. And it's hard to build the kind of developer mind share and usage and community out of that smaller pool. And so one of the advantages we have is when we do something, it's accessible to, you know, everybody in the world. And that just makes it easier to, to build that community. And that kind of takes on a life of its own. And that's that's been an advantage for us as well. You know, on the other side of the ledger, um, you know, the clouds are very open there. They have a marketplace that you can sell through that kind of helps activate their sales force. There's, you know, there's a whole go to market with side of it. And, and that's actually a big deal for us. You know, we go out and talk about how um, customers can bridge between environments and enable, 
you know, a whole set of projects that they're trying to do with the cloud providers. And, and we're really excited about that. The cloud providers are excited about it. So it's, you know, it's an interesting dynamic. I think the infrastructure companies cooperate with the cloud companies as a whole and compete with the product teams. You know, a few of the product teams uh, within the company, they may cooperate with many others. Yeah, it's great. You, you make selling sound so easy. I'm sure it's a lot more uh, complicated than that. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I get the rationale of, you know, helping reps that are large, you know, $100 billion company achieve their goals in a complementary way, which, you know, is kind of mutually beneficial. So now I would say like on this selling point, again, back to open source religion, there used to be this notion like, hey, my open source project is so popular. I got a hundred million downloads. People love it. And I never need a sales team to go sell this thing. It should just sell by itself. Yeah. And yet you look at the most successful open source cloud native companies, be it Confluent, be it Mongo, be it Databricks, enterprise selling, is a huge component of that. So we we believe when we publish in our open cloud report every year, the role enterprise selling, selling can play even for cloud native or open source companies. Uh, I'd love to turn it over to you. When did you turn on the dial for enterprise sales? You know, What was the trigger for you to do it? Um, and if you look back, do you think you did it too early, too, too late, just right? Like what is the trigger you should look for in an open source motion when yeah. you say, hey, now yeah. Done on enterprise sales. That's that's a really good question. So you know, I would say it depends um, quite a lot on you know how the technology is being used, um, who the customers are, and then how also the product is delivered. And so the um, you know we started with our software product, and effectively that acts as a kind of premium product where the open source is out there. That's like you know free, and then you're selling you know more capabilities in this premium product. That, that does tend to mean you target companies that are going to buy the premium offering. They're operating at larger scale. They have deeper needs. That is going to be kind of large enterprises. They're going to probably buy a bigger chunk of it by the time they do. Um, and so we started with enterprise sales right away. And I think for that motion, that's what you need, right? As we moved into the cloud, um, that actually meant we were kind of walking backwards a little bit. When you think about cloud adoption, it doesn't really make sense that you start by downloading some piece of open source software, learning how to operate that, building around it, and then converting to a managed offering. You want to just start with the managed offering. And so that, that access to developers almost goes from open source download to you know, sign up and use the, the managed service with some kind of free tier or credits or some system that allows that. And so it's actually quite different in terms of the journey. And it's almost like you're, um, you know, it's almost like moving down market where you're, you're adding self-service, you're adding a more kind of transactional early stage sale um, that probably didn't really exist uh, in the on-premise world. So the, for us, uh, managing both the complexity of having both those things was definitely a lot of work, like getting that right, really trying to get the journey right in the cloud, trying to get the journey right on-premise out. That was definitely um, a lot to digest in a company that was, you know, in any, in any case, quite young and just trying to grow with the, the one product. So I, I would say it depends, um, you know, how the, the product is delivered. I would say if you're, start, if you're able to do just cloud only, which is easier, then I think it is better to start with self-service, get that kind of going. Maybe you're not really getting as much money as you feel like you could per customer, maybe you're not able to quite target exactly the customers you want, then you can kind of layer on a sales force to really build off of that base. But it gives you, you know, the ability to build, a, you know, a user base, a developer base, get a lot of the friction out of the product um, early on 
in, in a way that's really healthy. So that's the pattern I would recommend, which is actually different from what we did. But what we did came down to the fact that we felt there was a lot of leverage in covering on-premise and cloud. And as a result, we had to do things a little bit harder. Got it. Got it. You, you talk about cloud and there was more complexity with the cloud, but you launched the cloud service back in 2018, right? So talk to me, why was that the right time to launch the cloud service rather than like at the outset of the company? Yeah, I mean, I think it was actually even earlier than that, that the, the initial launch was like, we worked on it for a while. We had an initial launch. It takes a while to get these things to kind of GA. So maybe that, I think 2018 was probably the first kind of production uh, availability. Yeah, why was it the right time? It was literally the soonest we could get it done. You know, we we underestimated, or, you know, I should say, I, in this case, I underestimated how difficult it would be to get a second product offering going, you know, in a company that was in it, you know, landing large customers and just growing with the first one. That was a very difficult thing to do, you know, in a small company. We kind of pulled it off, but but barely. Fair amount of the iceberg is under the water with kind of cloud infrastructure, right? Just the what you need in terms of orchestration and billing and you know security certifications, whatever. There's just a lot that has to um, get done for it to be viable, and so it's definitely you know it's definitely a lot to bite off on the product side. And then you know one of the things I didn't appreciate early on was even though the product is very much kind of the same, the journey for the user is actually a little different. And that affects the go-to-market, and it's something that really required us to adapt how you know how we worked with customers. Jay, so you you talked a lot about cloud, and it's important to get the product and the user journey right. You also talked a lot about enterprise sales before that. Should we think of enterprise sales and cloud as orthogonal? Because some of the largest customers of your cloud service are also Fortune 500 companies. So. What are the best practices for enterprise selling a cloud product? It's a great question. So, you know, I think technology sales are, you know, this kind are kind of a, a combination of bottom-up adoption and, you know, kind of top-down agreement. And so what, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you think about a product like Confluent, if developers don't want to build applications around it, it's not going to get used and people aren't going to keep paying us. <laughs> if we don't have bottom-up adoption, we're dead, right? We, we, don't, we don't continue to succeed in the account. Um, we don't continue to exist in the account. And then, you know, at the same time, there has to be an understanding of what the value of this platform is. You have to connect with the projects that actually matter. And you have to get all the approvals to actually roll it out and use it as it becomes a, a bigger line item in spend. The, you know that the pressure on that understanding goes up and up, right? And so, um, you know that that first thing is really a kind of technical developer audience. The second one tends to be, you know, kind of a management layer. The seniority of that depends on the size of the the purchase, right? Um, and so that's that's why I think, uh, you know, the, this type of product it ends up needing both. You need this kind of very low friction self service usage, which is how you can attach to developers. And then you really to turn it into, you know, part of the architecture that's used across the company, uh, you know, the, you know, something that's a, a serious production dependency, you end up needing an enterprise sales team. And I, I think it is totally orthogonal to cloud on-premise, uh, any of that. And you would see that in the SaaS application world as well, where there's certainly a lot of kind of single user products that are just purely self-serve, but by and large, um, you know, companies, if they're able to make the transition, end up doing better if they can add an enterprise sales force that can kind of take this into customers and make it, you know, really successful platform over time. And I think it's even more true, you know, in the space that we're in. 
And, and I think you're kind of seeing that prove out. It doesn't mean you have to start with that. I think some of the healthiest motions are built from the bottom up, right? And they kind of get there over time. Uh, to, to your point about what's the right time to layer that on, you know, I wouldn't feel that it's a bad thing to add. If you think about it, these uh, infrastructure platforms are a big, complex, long-term decision. You know, you start to build around it, you end up using it for the next decade. So, how, you know, whenever somebody has to make a big, complex, long-term decision, it's going to be hard. You usually want to help them through that process. That's kind of what a sales team is there, there to help you do. So if I, if I restate what you just said, the modality of selling, whether you're cloud or on-prem, that's secondary to the type of customer you're addressing, right? When you're selling to a Fortune 500 bank with 10,000 developers, you need somebody who can guide them through that 10-year decision around an infrastructure, regardless of whether they're buying an on-premises or cloud product. On the other hand, you might have one-off developers in a small to medium-sized company that may transact without touching a sales guy. So the, the, the way you stratify your go-to-market motion is more driven by the type of customer than the type of product, if I, if I understood that correctly. I would say it's even more driven by the size of the deal. You know, so the type, this type of product, it can kind of scale. You can, you can buy, you know, $3 worth of Confluent on your credit card. Uh, and then you can scale to spending, you know, millions and millions of dollars a year. Um, and so one of the things that's been surprising to us is if you look at even smaller tech companies, they often actually end up operating at very large scale, spending quite a lot on cloud infrastructure. And if you have a company like that, that's spending a lot of money, you better have a significant relationship with them. If they just kind of slid their credit card and did that, they may unslide their credit card and leave at any time. You haven't really built understanding in the organization. You're not really doing enough to ensure they're, they're successful. And so I, to me, that's actually what's most important. I would say, you know, if you get out into the world of larger enterprise, you may not be able to get in the door in any way without a real sales force. The slide the credit card thing may be a no, you know, a non-option. Um, so it may be the only way to, you know, get deals done there. But I, I think it ends up mattering as customers become big, no matter who you're selling to. That's true. Fair enough. But, you know, you, you talk about it, the size of the deal. What about the type of deal? Like lately, we've seen a lot more deals go from ratable, you know, annual deals to pay-as-you-go consumption-driven deals. Yeah. You know, Snowflake has certainly kind of gone down the path and has done quite well with that. Is that good or bad? Like when enterprises want to sign a consumption deal where they pay as you go, they certainly introduce you more volatility in your recognition. But is that a net positive or net negative? And how do you incentivize a sales team to do right by the customer despite these volatile deals? Yeah, yeah. So we we have the exact exactly the same model for our cloud offering, where you know if you're if you're doing a deal for 150k with Confluent, really all you're doing is committing to spend 150k, and you could have done that just purely in a pay-as-you-go consumption way. This is just a way of locking in a discount and kind of formalizing the agreement, and so it's a kind of pure consumption model in that respect. You know, uh, us Snowflake, everybody is kind of copying. Amazon, I think, who you know did this for the cloud infrastructure. I think it's exactly, it's exactly the right model, and I, you know, it's it's actually very interesting. It aligns the interests of the company with the customer's usage and success. So you can, you know, to me, I think of like that movement from perpetual licensing to subscription. That's like one step of alignment. You're a little closer 
But it's like, well, you know, just because I bought some seats, does that mean I'm really getting value out of it? The actual usage is obviously a little closer to ongoing value. And so I, I actually think it's an interesting model. I think it has some applicability even outside the infrastructure world up into some of the application space, not for everything, but, but for certain things. And it's great. Now it is very complicated because there's a really well understood way of tracing everything back to bookings, you know, uh, and in the enterprise world. And so that go to market, just what stats do you need to pay attention to? How does a team operate? How do you think about marketing pipeline? It's just all very well understood in the pre-consumption world. In the post-consumption world, everybody's kind of making it up as they go along, you know, so you can compare notes with the half dozen other companies doing this, but, you know, they're, they're kind of evolving quite quickly as well. And so that's, that's the trade-off. I think it's much better. I think it aligns with the success of the customer. I think it matches how you naturally adopt this kind of technology. What's really powerful about it is effectively the customer can decide to do more at any time. You know, they can spin up the next application. There's no transaction required to do that. And it takes up their spend as they do it, right? And so it's, you know, it's very low friction. And I think it's a really powerful thing. And I, I think it's the right model for this kind of technology. It's just, it's just hard to do well. Yeah, no, I mean, look, judging by how, you know, many of your peers and Confluent has done, you guys have clearly figured out how to make it worthwhile. And certainly aligns you better with the customer, right? The, the burden of success is on the vendor as opposed to the customer. I mean, when you went from perpetual software to recurring revenue, annual deals, you said, hey, if it doesn't work out, you can take it out next year. Now you're saying, hey, consumption, if it doesn't work out well, you don't have to use it. And so you can immediately vote with your yeah, fee. Yeah. Aligns the incentive of the customer with, you know, software CEOs who, you know, want to create better products and satisfy the customer. So it certainly feels like the right thing to do. Um, but from a revenue recognition and financial reporting perspective, it's been surprising to see how smoothly this transition has happened and how companies with consumption models have been rewarded so nicely. I think how hard it is to manage the consumption part of the business depends a little bit on the nature of the product. You know, these kind of, I would call it production software uses tend to be kind of steady state. And so it's hard to get the production application up and running. Once it's up and running, it kind of runs the same, you know, for a long period of time. Things that have like active user usage, they could fluctuate quite a lot. You know, maybe the holiday season <laughs> or something, right? So we, we tend to support more kind of production application usage. So there isn't a huge challenge in forecasting. You know, there can be a challenge in ensuring the customers get to success on the timeframe that we predicted. That's actually a good challenge for us to take on, right? It means we're like really paying close attention to where they're at in their deployment cycle, et cetera. So I think that aspect of it is really healthy. It definitely adds, you know, another um, layer of complexity in, in what's already, I think, complex go-to-market. Once you have the kind of bottom-up self-service and enterprise sales and the consumption, you got a lot going on in that part of the business. I think if you can master all those uh, dials is really powerful. Um, but the challenge is just doing it all well and making it really fit together into like one journey that matches how customers actually want to expand and use the technology over time. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we talked about a lot of dials, Jay, on the go-to-market side and the financial side. We haven't talked about the dials and how to manage that on the product side. I mean, as a product founder and engineer yourself, like how do you manage, you know, the roadmap for your your on-premises product versus a cloud product? And is it important to be aligned on both and always in sync or any, any best practices on how you can manage your roadmap in this hybrid world? 
Yeah, I mean, the I, I would say, you know, first of all, if you can avoid it, <laughs> just do one, you know, just start with the cloud. Uh, that definitely, um, you know, adds a lot of simplicity for us. You know, we made a decision at a point in time to, to really build for the cloud and do that in a way that we could release that periodically on-premise. And there's some overhead to getting into that motion and uh, in planning for things, you know, making sure things will work, you know, for actually each of the clouds and then on-premise as well. But then that, um, that means as we release software, it's really operated at scale for thousands and thousands of customers, you know, kind of gives us a way of really having trust in anything that we're putting out there. So that's, that's worked well for us. How to manage that roadmap is actually quite difficult, right? Because you, you do have to, you know, there's parts of the product which are shared across everything. And then there's some layers which are for each cloud or for on-premise that have to be right. Lot, lots of moving parts, for sure. So talking of moving parts, uh, IPO, huge milestone for you guys earlier this year. Congratulations on the, uh, the success so far and looking forward to many, many more years of uh, growth here. Talk to us about, you know, your your decision to take the company public. You know, it's been a remarkable six-year journey where you build the company, build the product, uh, and clearly scaled it very nicely. What was the kind of pros and cons as you evaluated going public this year versus, you know, growing more and going, you know, perhaps on the cloud product, uh, growing the cloud product further and going public later? Because we're seeing companies that are waiting until they go to 500 million to a billion sometimes and then go public. Others are going earlier in the cycle. I'm curious, what was your thought process? Yeah, it's a great question. The thought process going into it, yeah, you know, I think maybe leading up to this, say in like 2017 type era, it seemed like there were a lot more companies who were trying to delay going public till the last possible moment. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it while you're in that kind of growth phase. And so for us, it was more like, hey, when's the time where we're going to be able to do this well, um, rather than trying to just delay and delay. I think it is possible to delay for quite a while. There's, you know, it's possible to raise large amounts of money on the private market. So, you know, if anything, that ability to kind of extend the runway is, you know, further is, is definitely possible. Um, but I, I, I don't think, you know, at least in this environment, I don't think it's a huge constraint for companies to be public. And there's a number of advantages, you know, if nothing else, in a very competitive hiring market, uh, employees understand what their compensation means, which is actually quite valuable uh, if you're competing for top talent. There were a number of factors that we thought would be advantages, right? The ability to make acquisitions better, the ability for people to understand their comp, you know, the visibility in the market, especially since we were kind of a new category that, you know, taking that out was important. So we thought, hey, look, there's, you know, potentially a bunch of pros. The key thing for us was less about the scale of the business. Like we were on a reasonable trajectory there. It was really just about getting to a point where we felt we could operate predictably and kind of know where we were heading towards. And that took a lot of work. You know, honestly, we spent a fair amount of time just trying to really nail that, um, which I think is common um, in early enterprise businesses where it's just hard to kind of master exactly where things are going. And then it was probably extra hard for us just because there's multiple products and, you know, different growth rates and ways of selling both. So, you know, that, that was really the, the hill we had, we felt like we had to get to the top of before we did it. And then um, once we had that, we didn't really tie and time it, you know, maybe, maybe we should have, you know, the stock prices went up since the IPO. So maybe, we, you know, maybe you could optimize that further, but our, my feeling with fundraising on the private markets or the IPO is, you know, it's impossible to time these things perfectly uh, ahead of time. So you want to get a reasonable deal at each stage. 
uh, and then, you know, grow as much as can uh, before the next one, right? So, you know, in this case, we, we weren't really trying to time it of like, hey, this is when the business is going to look most perfect. We felt like, hey, we're, we feel like we have a really good insight into where we're going and we feel pretty confident in the trajectory, you know, we're, we're ready to do this. And, and yeah, the other part of it was just really having the, the team that, that could help us operate that way and, and getting that in place. I got to say like zero to 20 billion, you just make it sound so easy. Like doing that in five or six years, just do a few things right. And there you go. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more complexity that's behind the covers here. If you, if you look back, Jay, like if you look at your last seven year journey of Confluent from where you started to where you are, were there like two or three major inflection points, whether it's team changes or product changes, like the toughest decisions you had to make that you look back and say, I'm glad I made that decision. You know, I don't know if this is a hard decision, but it was probably the biggest inflection point um, was really the cut over to focus on the cloud product. And so we, you know, there was a point in time where we knew, you know, we'd done an early version of our cloud product, but we built it almost in a silo, you know, which is actually a good way to do something new. Um, and so it wasn't really the main thing the company was doing. And it wasn't the, you know, we weren't set up really to sell it effectively. Um, on the engineering team, most people were not working on that. Uh, we were a pretty young company, so we just landed a bunch of large customers that had big expectations from our on-premise offering. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, despite all of that, we felt very strongly that, um, you know, over time, the bulk of the business was going to be in the cloud and was going to be the managed service. And to really, you know, if we could master that, we felt like that would be a huge competitive mode. And so, um, you know, there, there was a point where we actually made a hard cut over and just said, look, what we're going to do now is we're going to get all the rest of the parts of the product that aren't there into the cloud. And we're going to start releasing first there. We're going to start developing first there. We're going to release incrementally. We're going to try and lead with that on the sales side. And that was a, um, that was a really painful shift. It was really, really difficult really difficult just to um, get the attention onto the new thing because you can imagine in a small company, barely have enough to, uh, you know, keep the wheels on the bus with the one thing you have, um, you know, difficult with customers because you're, you're trying to keep a set of people happy um, while you're really putting resources into something else that you think they will need, but is not the thing that they need quite yet. Um, and then just, you know, hard, at, you know, with any early product to kind of get through that cycle. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, that was probably one of the hardest uh, changes internally, just in terms of um, getting the attention shifted, making the set of changes. And despite the fact that we knew we were going to do it, you know, it was uh, a little controversial internally. Um, but I, I felt like it was actually not a very hard decision. Like the you know, the hard decisions are the ones where there's a lot of uncertainty. You know, this one, there wasn't a lot of uncertainty. We knew we had to do it. We just didn't know if we could. So we were like, you know, we're like, we may die trying, but we know we need to try. So uh, I don't know if that's hard. It's just scary. So it was scary at the time we made it through it. But, um, you know, but it, there was definitely some white, white knuckle moments in the process. I'm sure. Talking, talking about hard decisions, Jay, you know, often some of the hardest decisions are people related, right? So as you look back at the journey, you know, were there points in time, whether it's a function of the company size or your revenue, where you said, hey, I need to, I need to change my team or bring you know, new folks in. Any kind of advice to other founders as they're scaling the business from you know, zero to 10 to 100, 
Uh, when should they start thinking about that? And maybe the folks you have are the perfect folks for the next stage of the journey, but is it time to reevaluate if you have the right folks? What are some of those thresholds? You know, I, I think people know, like when I, when I talk to, um, you know, other CEOs, I think they actually know when things aren't working. You know, the challenge is, you know, if you're running a company, you don't want it to fall apart. <laughs> so you're afraid if anything changes, if there's something that doesn't have a leader and you're trying to cover it, you know, usually when you're thinking about making some change like that is when there's some part of the business is not working well. And that's the most difficult kind of scary time. And so, you know, I, I think people know when they need to do it. And it's just, you know, it's just a question of actually doing it, um, which is really hard. And, you know, I, I, I think people know because you can kind of see the operations. You know, sometimes it'll be that the results are bad. Sometimes you can see the results are good, but actually how you're getting to the results is not good. Yeah, there's definitely changes. I mean, um, each stage of the company is a little different. You know, the, the kind of experience that's going to be able to be really good at that is a little different. And so there are people that kind of go that whole journey uh, from a very small organization to larger. And there's others where somebody else has to come in and do it. And, you know, it's actually really hard either way. It's hard to grow with a company that grows really quick. It's, you know, it's hard if somebody has to kind of come in and take over a chunk of the organization and, you know, try and step in and make it great. All of a sudden, either are really difficult. Incredibly helpful, Jay. Any any kind of final advice, any final words, anything else that comes to mind I may not have asked? No, good luck. You know, it's, <laughs> uh, for us, it's been, uh, you know, scary and fun and exciting. And I, I hope it's the same experience for you. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your perspectives from this incredible journey you had at Confluent. And I'm sure this is just the beginning of the journey. So we're looking forward to the next decade under your leadership. Thanks, Armesh. It's great to chat.